Follow me, he said, and led us through a long, noisome passage, which was pitch dark and very unevenly paved. Then he unlocked a door, and with a swirl, the wind caught it and blew it back on us. We were looking into a mean little yard, with on one side a high curving wall, evidently of great age, with bushes growing in the cracks of it. At one end was a broken building, like a dissenting chapel, but painted a dingy scarlet. Behold the pavilion, Cuprasse said proudly. That is the old place I observed with feeling. What times I've seen there. Tell me, Mr. Caprasso, do you ever open it now? He put his lips to my ear. Men must amuse themselves even in war. Some of the German officers come here for their pleasure. And but last week, we had the ballet of Mademoiselle Sissi. Tomorrow afternoon, there will be dancing. Wonderful dancing. Only a few of my patrons know. Who thinks you will be there? He bent his head closer and said in a whisper, The company of the rosy hours. Oh, indeed, I said in a proper tone of respect, though I hadn't a notion what he meant. Welcome back to John Buchan Unbound, our podcast series supported by the John Buchan Society, which celebrates his life and works. I'm Michael Redley, a professional historian, and our atmospheric opener, set in the dingy back streets of wartime Constantinople, now Istanbul, is from Greenmantle, the second of Buchan's wartime novels, which are helping us to explore his role in the Great War. In this episode, we'll be looking at the influences on this thrilling novel, The Great War, of course, itself, as well as Buchan's work in the Foreign Office and in propaganda. Yes, hello. I'm Ursula Buchan, granddaughter of John Buchan and his latest biographer. In the last episode, Michael and I looked at The 39 Steps, his first Great War novel, written just after it began in August 1914. In Greenmantle, the war has moved on. The Western Front has solidified into trench lines all the way from the Swiss border to the English Channel, and inventive minds on both sides had begun to look for ways around the Ampath. The 39 Steps, in that book you'll remember from the first episode, the hero, Richard Hannay, is a bluff South African of Scottish extraction, newly arrived in England, and with a talent for problem-solving. Hannay has come to the attention of Sir Walter Bullivant, Head of Intelligence at the British Foreign Office, and in Greenmantle, it's Bullivant who calls him back from the Western Front, where he's commanding a Scottish battalion for another tough and secret job. Just, just before Michael digs deep into the background to Greenmantle, I'd like to read you part of the book's dedication, as I think it tells us quite a lot about Buchan at the time. The book's dedicated to his beloved mother-in-law, Caroline Grosvenor, in whose house he began to write this story in February 1916. Here goes. During the past year, in the intervals of an active life, I have amused myself with constructing this tale. It has been scribbled in every kind of odd place and moment, in England and abroad, during long journeys, in half hours between graver tasks, and it bears, I fear, the mark of its gypsy begetting. But it has amused me to write, and I shall be well repaid if it amuses you and a few others to read. Let no man or woman call its events improbable. The war has driven that word from our vocabulary, and melodrama has become the prosiest realism. 
Things unimagined before happen daily to our friends by sea and land. The one chance in a thousand is habitually taken, and as often as not succeeds. Coincidence stretches a hundred long arms hourly across the earth. Someday, when the full history is written, sober history with ample documents, the poor romancer will give up business and fall to reading Jane Austen in a hermitage. (laughs) (laughs) So let me pick up a few of these points. The suggestion that the circumstances of war have conspired to make the improbable seem normal, that point occurs also in The 39 Steps. Incidents in that novel, Buchan truthfully says there, uh, I I quote, defy the probabilities and march just inside the borders of the possible. Now, I think both the in, bo- in both the occurrences of, of that of that thought, uh, there is an alibi in a way for his plots, although in the eyes of his readers, who were often soldiers enduring monotony and fear in the trenches of the Western Front, the vivid characters, the immersive settings, and the narrative pace, more than compensated for the extreme implausibility of the storyline. Yeah, this I is, think that's right. This yeah, is absolutely. No, don't you think? Yeah. This was pure escapism, plain and simple. And also, let me say, the few others he mentions who, as he modestly suggests, might read the book, that was a misleading thought. The 39 Steps had sold 33,000 copies in its first three months and green mantle, mantle was to sell even more. Yeah. And in, in Buchan's description of how green mantle was written, amid graver duties, we do get a hint of the life he led in the first two years of the war, which surely raises the question why he wrote it. Don't you think? Yeah, I do. After all, he was busy as a journalist for Lord Northcliffe's Times newspaper at the Battle of Los in the middle of 1915. And then he worked in the information department of the Foreign Office in London, writing pamphlets, drafting official communiques, and briefing correspondents of foreign newspapers who had come to London, notably the American press. This can loosely be described as propaganda. But what do we really mean by that contested word? Mm. Well, we need to be clear on this point, I think. Propaganda is as old as the hills, of course, but towards the end of the 19th century, it began to take a new form, responding to mass opinion and mass media, and governments started to take a direct hand. During the First World War, every major belligerent power supplied a stream of messages to allies, neutral states, and enemies, as well as to its own population. The aim to persuade people to think and behave in a desired way without them realising that they were being persuaded. Drawing attention to the propagandist would, after all, have been counterproductive in this setting. But propaganda is also a word which has changed its meaning over the past hundred years, hasn't it? In the First World War, much propaganda was undoubtedly mendacious. Yeah. But there was also a clear sense that propaganda worked best when it was truthful. Strangely, John Buchan was one of the early proponents of propaganda based on the truth and a pioneer in its organisation and practical application in this way. By the second half of the century, the very use of the word propaganda carried with it a strong suspicion of mendacity, which is the situation today. 
But that's not what we mean using the word as Buchan himself used it, is it? No, it, it's not. And, and it might just be worth emphasizing this point about the truth being a basis for propaganda. It's in a way not so surprising because people will feel betrayed by being told a lie and they True. will discredit the, the next statement. They, they, will, they will disbelieve it. And, and it was that fact that the reality of truth-telling as a way of getting information accepted, uh, which was the underlying idea here. And going on from that, just to add verisimilitude to his reports on the war, in touch with the events he was describing, this, this very point about truth that we're making, Buchan went on extended trips as, as an observer to the Western Front. And all the while, he was adding to the novel, to Greenmantle, in snatched moments, on trains, in military camps, and even when his stomach got the worst of him, in a casualty clearing station. Yep, there's a story, isn't there, about somebody going to visit him in the in the casualty clearing station, and he's got the he's got the pages of Greenmantle all laid out on his on his own. Yes, just scattered all around his bed as well, as far as I can remember. And this was remarkable in itself, if you like, that he was writing under such extreme circumstances. And as we'll see when we, when we get to the plot. His story of rapid movement through exotic locations, in all that, he was evoking a situation entirely different to the one he was experiencing himself on the Western Front. And there's another irony in Buchan's reference to the romancer being displaced by the historian, because, as we know, he was actually writing a history at the same time as Greenmantle, which became yeah. enormously significant in the national propaganda efforts. Absolutely. That, that's so important. The book he was writing, actually more like a, a modern part encyclopedia than a book, was Nelson's History of the War. Buchan kept adding new volumes so that by the end of the war, by the end of the conflict, there were 24 volumes in all, running to well over a million words. It started, this, 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 this effort, as a way of making up for work lost as a result of the war at Thomas Nelson's printing works in Edinburgh. But it grew, Nelson's history grew, into a major bestseller in Britain, the United States, and more widely through translations into European languages. Over three quarters of a million copies of its various parts in the English language alone were sold during the war. And you and I have both read it, haven't we? We we, we have, <laughs> yes. A few people have, but we Yes. Have. And it really is a unique take on the war, isn't it? Yes, it uh, really is. It's a contemporary reporting of the conflicts written as though it were a historical narrative. But there is also a strong authorial voice with excursions into social and economic aspects of the war as well. And again, Buchan had to write Nelson's history in gaps in other work. The War Office tried to stop it because they had fears that as Buchan came to know more and more, military secrets might inadvertently be given away. I seem to re remember that in his, his memoirs, he actually admitted that this was a practical problem for him. He, he, he sometimes didn't know what, where he'd heard stuff that he put down, and he was constantly harassed to make sure that, that, that he wasn't giving secrets away. Right, absolutely. Very punctilious about that. Yep. The, and actually, he was lucky because the Foreign Office did champion it because they thought its propaganda value was, was so good. And it did continue through to the end of the war. And he earned not a penny from it. 
So as a sort of, sort of summary of, of all that, in a way, in the case of Greenmantle, as we'll see in the next episode as well on Mr. Standfast, Buchan was drawing in all this work on a deep well of actual knowledge about the war in all its aspects. The novel is a skillful blending, I, I believe, of fact and fiction, not so loose as to offend the historically minded, nor so tight as to hamper a good story. It treads a delicate line down the middle between those right. two. And you can see his wartime fiction, I think, and Nelson's history running in parallel with it as fictional and factual counterparts of each other in a comprehensive drive to shape public views of the war. I think we should make a point about the strategic background to Greenmantle. The story is set in, in the context of Germany's alliance with Turkey, and the big event hovering over the tale is the failure of Allied forces on the Gallipoli Peninsula to break through to Constantinople. Had they done so, the hope was that Tsarist Russia would have got enormous relief, while Germany's ally, Austria-Hungary, would be hugely disadvantaged. But in January 1916, after the loss of tens of thousands of British, Australian and New Zealand lives, thanks to fierce and very effective Turkish resistance, the last Allied troops left the Dardanelles. It was a defeat and, and a major strategic setback for the Allied cause. So how is it represented in Greenmantle then? Well, perhaps not surprisingly, actually Gallipoli is hardly mentioned at all. The book's climax is a fictionalised account of a relatively insignificant ep episode which occurred a few weeks later, 900 miles away at Erzurum, the mountainous part of Turkey near to the eastern border with Russia. You, you've and, been there, haven't you, Michael? <laughs> yes, I, I, I did many, many years ago. I can remember standing in a street with, with, with Russian buildings on either side, sort of Russian military cantonment buildings on either side. It was a, a strange experience a long time would, ago. Would they have dated from, from the First World War then? I think they would have buildings? been built would have been built during the occupation by, by Russia, which followed the Turkish defeat, I suspect. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. To forestall the redeployment of Turkish forces from Gallipoli to fronts elsewhere, the Russians brought forward an assault they were already planning against Erzurum. And the fall of the city in February nineteen sixteen is described by Buchan in Nelson's history as, and I quote, one of the most brilliant strategical episodes of the war. I mean, this was surely rather an overstatement. You're telling me. <laughs> but, the, but the way the eastern gateway to Turkey defended with German assistance had fallen so quickly was, as Buchan put it, striking proof of Russia's vitality and, incidentally, perhaps also suggesting that the strategic setback of Gallipoli was not as grave as might have been feared. But the drama of Greenmantle takes the reader away from brute force, whether in Gallipoli or eastern Turkey, and towards a conflict of beliefs. This was an aspect of warfare in which Buchan was always particularly interested, as we'll see shortly. Take a break from your detective work, Buchan fans, because we've got something exciting to share with you. John Buchan was an important figure in the first half of the 20th century, 
a well-connected politician and statesman, an admired historian, as well as an incredibly successful novelist. If this podcast makes you want to know more, the John Buchan Society, which supports John Buchan Unbound, is inviting you to join the great adventure. The Society has been pioneering the study of John Buchan for more than 40 years, hosting friendly and lively meetings and seminars, and producing a journal reporting research into the many different aspects of this diverse, amazing man. And if you happen to find yourself dramatically hanging out of a train and passing peebles in Scotland, check out the John Buchan Story Museum, where you can find everything you would want to learn about the man and his books. So, to hear more about the Society and join in the adventure, visit www.johnbuchansociety.co.uk and become part of Buchan's story yourself. Now, let's get back to the action. As we've already said, Buchan began Greenmantle in February 1916, immediately after the fall of Erzurum, which is the climax of the story. He finished it four months later. It seems hardly credible, doesn't it, that he could have written this novel so quickly in the light of everything else that was occupying his time. But he did, with a storyline which made a drama out of an exotic, but nonetheless real, aspect of the war. And I think we should turn to the plot now to go deeper here. Yep. The extract Ursula read right at the start mentioned the Companions of the Rosy Hours. And in the story, they are a fundamentalist Islamic sect with a stronghold on the minds of ordinary people in the Islamic world, who oppose the secular wartime government of Turkey and its alliance with the Germans. The sect enjoys mass support. They want to break all links with the foreigner so that Turkey can again stand tall in the world, and they look for a figure out of radical Islam to lead them to this victory. And in Green Mantle, we're plunged into the media of this holy war. Richard Hanney, who's convalescing after the Battle of Loth with a fellow officer from his battalion called Sandy Arbuthnot, is dispatched on a mission to investigate, and if possible to foil, the potential threat of a holy war, which would create mayhem in those British possessions with Muslim populations across the world. All the information that Hanney is given by our old friend Sir Walter Bullivant are three cryptic clues which he must unravel. Right, and passions are being stirred up by the Germans to use for their advantage, particularly against the Russians allied to Britain and France, and to promote German influence generally in the Near and Middle East. And as Sir Walter Bullivant says, and I quote, there is a dry wind blowing through the east, and the parched grasses wait the spark. The wind is blowing towards the Indian border. Crikey. <laughs> <laughs> and really what that's saying is that the British Empire is itself under threat. Buchan has been recently praised for his insight in featuring radical Islamism in the story, although actually the threat of the Germans harnessing a jihad movement for their own purposes was real enough, and it was well understood at the time. Considerable efforts were indeed made to counter the threat. And it, it's a conceit of the story, really, that an agent of Britain, Hannay's friend Sandy, is able to take control of the movement to use against Germany instead of Germany using it against Britain. 
Right, so let, let me just give a, a, a bit of an idea of some of the plot. The first half of the book concerns the various secret journeys to Constantinople made by the band of brothers who've been given the task of discovering who is fermenting holy war. Hane and Sandy, of course, but also Peter Pinar, the South African Boer tracker and hunter, and John Scantlebury Blencaren, the rich, humorous, and influential American businessman, stroke engineer, stroke spy, who seems to be able to turn a hand to anything. Blencaren speaks in scriptural metaphors, sings John Brown's body, and has Buchan's own stomach troubles, as well as his love of playing patience in moments of stress. And there are plenty, also plenty of meaningful coincidences along the way, as we've come to expect. In his usual dogged manner, Hannay manages to unravel the clues and unmask the plot, which is being directed, would you believe it, by a fanatical and wicked, but of course mesmerising, German woman called Hilda von Einem. Greenmantle's preoccupation with hectic travel, uh, as usual featuring stolen motor cars and last-minute escapes, would have appealed to anyone stuck in the trenches, surely, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And so too would Hanny's reflection on trench life against the background of his own fictional odyssey. As in, and I quote, it is a wise man who said that the biggest kind of courage is to be able to sit still. And it's the job that matters, not the men that do it. Greenmantle's a subtler book than The 39 Steps, and I think more exciting as a thriller, personally, although, to be honest, it's scarcely more credible. <laughs> no. And, and you get in Greenmantle the first appearance in Buchan's fiction of, of riffs, consisting of exotic names and references to far-flung places, which I always think are a delight in Buchan's fiction. Uh, and, and I'd love just to quote this one example, uh, which is Hannay's description in Greenmantle of the far-travelled Sandy. You will hear of him at little forgotten fishing ports where the Albanian mountains dip to the Adriatic. If you struck a Mecca pilgrimage, the odds are you would meet a dozen of Sandy's friends in it. In shepherd's huts in the Caucasus, you will find bits of his cast-off clothing, for he has a knack of shedding garments as he goes. In the caravanserais of Bukhara and Samarkand, he is known, and the shikaris in the Pamirs, who still speak of him round their fires, if you were going to visit Petrograd or Rome or Cairo, it would be no use asking for him for introductions. If he gave them, they would lead you into strange haunts. But if fate compelled you to go to Lhasa or Yarkand or Seistan, he could map out your road for you and pass the word to potent friends. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Sandy Arbuthnet is based largely on a real person, funnily enough, whom Buchan knew at Oxford, Aubrey Herbert, who was fluent in a number of languages, had travelled widely, and took up the cause of an independent Albania, but turned down the offer of its crown in 1914. <laughs> it was part of Buchan's romance, that there existed these freelance, colourful characters like Sandy, who obeyed no rules and popped up in fresh disguises in unlikely places. The exotic settings in Greenmantle would certainly have intrigued British and American readers. 
Buchan's fictional accounts of Turkey's politics and religion are intrinsic to the story, but the thing is they have a ring of truth about them. Buchan had never been to eastern Anatolia like me, <laughs> where the denouement takes place. Yes, but we shouldn't forget that he and his wife Susan had fetched up in Constantinople while they were on a yachting holiday in the eastern Mediterranean uh, yes, that's in, true. in 1910, yep. which yep. he would have remembered. While there, he met members of the Young Turks faction who crop up in the novel, and even the Sultan's brother. And his work in the Foreign Office, of course, would have alerted him to German schemes to harness radical Islam. Although, to be fair, they were also reported in the newspapers at the time. And we should also underline here the interest there would have been in Buchan's introduction of the redoubtable American engineer John S. Blencaren as a major contributor to the action in Greenmantle. Yeah, Blencaren's status as a neutral enables him to travel freely in Germany and Turkey in the novel, acting covertly in the Allied cause. This hinted in a way neatly at the active sympathies of many Americans when there was Allied frustration at Woodrow Wilson's assertion that the United States was too proud to fight and it maintained its isolationist position then. And it's no surprise that Blenkiron hails from Indiana, one of the most isolationist states in the Union, nor that Greenmantle was also published quickly in the United States. There's no doubt that the novel had a propaganda purpose. Absolutely. And in the course of the adventure, Richard Hanney meets both the German emperor, Kaiser Wilhelm II, and Enver Pasha, the Turkish leader, surely on this occasion going right beyond the boundaries of the possible. I'd say way beyond. I mean, just think of it. Uh, <laughs> yes. he, he, meet, he meets the Kaiser on a railway station in the middle of Germany, and he meets Enver at a party. Well, really. Uh, anyway, there's also a sympathetic portrait of a decent German, an engineer called Gaudian, who pops up again, as we'll see, to lend a very important hand in The Three Hostages. That's, a, that's another of the Halle novels to which we'll be coming in due course. It's interesting, isn't it, that with a few striking exceptions, which readers will enjoy if they read the book, Buchan's brief accounts of these meetings emphasise shared humanity across the divide between the warring sides. Yes, indeed. But no holes barred in the book's descriptions of the vile ideology behind the German war effort, distinguishing sharply between the ordinary man with the rifle and the regime's making war was, of course, a common feature of wartime propaganda. But Greenmantle goes further. It uses the fine austerity of militant Islam as a way of showing up the vanity of all Western ways, though, of course, the Germans, seeking to twist it to their own purposes, are naturally worst of all. On another point altogether, it always seems a shame to me that no one ever took up the option of making a film of Greenmantle. There were one or two attempts to get such a project off the ground. Apparently, after Buchan's death, Alfred Hitchcock wanted to film it with Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman in the lead. But nothing sadly ever came of it. It was a great shame. It would have been a brilliant film. And these days, CGI would do a good job of portraying all those Cossacks riding helter-skelter towards the city of Erzurum. 
Greenmantle was published in the autumn of 1916, and uh, another little sidelight on, on the novel. The following October, Buchan received a touching letter from the Grand Duchess Olga, who was under house arrest in Tobolsk in Siberia with her family. And in it, she said, the Grand Duchess said, how much her sisters and her father, Tsar Nicholas II, had been comforted by reading Greenmantle. And as Buchan wrote to his mother, I quote, it is an odd fate for me to cheer the prison of the Tsar. Although, of course, oh, the Bolsheviks <laughs> executed Tsar Nicholas with his family the following year. Yes, indeed, they did. Greenmantle turned out to be John Buchan's best-selling book, as, as we've hinted at, outdoing even the 39 Steps, and it has remained in print ever since, more than 100 years, which makes it, by Leslie Stevens' account anyway, a, cl a, a classic. A, a classic novel is one that lasts at least 100 years. But strangely, it still has something to say to us now. The picture of radical jihadism that Buchan described in 1916 means even more today than it did then. As a Westerner and a Christian, he didn't know as much about Islam as the man who would become his friend after the war, T.E. Lawrence. But his wartime history writing, when allied to masterly storytelling, produced a credible and extremely popular adventure story. And one that made valuable propaganda points. But they were skillfully done since it was vital that no one thought they were being told what to think. By the time the book came out, the Battle of the Somme on the Western Front had begun. And at that terrible time, any gripping tale, whether you were reading it as a soldier or in your armchair back at home, would surely have been very welcome. Welcome indeed. So that's it on Greenmantle. In the next episode, we shall travel forward a little in time to Mr. Standfast, the third of the Hane novels, which is set in 1917 and 1918 and has the most gripping climax of them all. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.